We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Well, hello, everybody. On this day following the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, the official slowest day on the sports calendar. Yeah, every year, uh, this is the one day most years. There may be a quirky year here and there where there's no games involving the four professional sports leagues, but this is the day guaranteed where you have no NBA games, no NHL games, no NFL games, and no Major League Baseball games, marking this as the slowest day of the year on the sports calendar. Uh, no worries. Two weeks from tomorrow night, first football game of the year, the Hall of Fame game in Canton, the Vegas Raiders and Washington's week one opponent, Jacksonville Jaguars, will play in the Hall of Fame game. The Raiders reported to camp today. Uh, by this time next week, all camps will be open, even though some teams it'll just be for rookies. Um, but we are one week away from camps. And uh, we are two weeks from tomorrow night away from a football game on television. But, yeah, this is always the slowest sports week of the year. And tonight is the day every year where there are no games. And that means no games to wager on. Uh, However, uh, if you go to my bookie, they've got plenty of NFL props. More on that coming up uh, in the show, including one of their interesting prop bets of this uh, lead up to the NFL season, which is coach of the year odds in the NFL. You'll hear more about that coming up on the show shortly. Two guests on the show today. Andy Polin is going to be on with me. The reason I asked Andy to come on is uh, no better person to have a conversation about whether or not the acquisition of Kevin Durant, if it were to happen, long shot, understood, Um, But if it were to happen, would be the single greatest sports acquisition for any of the major teams in the market in the history of this city. Uh, Andy and I are going to have that conversation. And then Kurt Bodenhausen. Uh, Kurt is the sports business writer for Sportico. He's written uh, very recently about the incredible revenues that the NFL Uh, has generated, including the overall television number and how that gets divided equally among the 32 teams and what that number is. And we'll get into a lot of detail 
about the Washington situation. Just how far has Washington fallen compared to the other 32 teams when it comes to uh, overall revenue? Uh, Kurt's a good guy. He's smart. Uh, It's an interesting conversation, I promise you. Um, that you will uh, enjoy it, or most of you, I think, will uh, enjoy it. Uh, a short open here before we get to Andy. I'm going to start with this because I did not see this story um, the last two days regarding Juan Soto and his agent Scott Boris and the fact that Juan Soto had to fly commercial to Los Angeles for the Home Run Derby and the All-Star game. He went 0 for 3 last night as the American League won the game 3 uh, to 2. Um yeah, uh Scott Boris his agent um told uh Sports Illustrated that they uh did not fly Juan Soto. The team did not fly Juan Soto out to Los Angeles as is customary for Major League Baseball teams or most Major League Baseball teams uh, to do. Uh, He said, quote, "Um, Juan Soto arrived five hours after the Atlanta Braves as a team arrived in Los Angeles. Do you want to know why? Scott Boris asked. The answer was, he said, quote, because their team chartered a plane. Juan Soto had to fly on a commercial flight and wait in an airport for two hours, and he got here at 1.30 in the morning and then had to compete in the home run derby, which he won, by the way. And that's something that Major League Baseball did not take care of, and that's something that the Washington Nationals did not take care of. Um, There was a pitcher, Paul Blackburn, for the Oakland A's, whose team, Oakland, also did not have a plan to fly him from Houston, where the A's finished up before the All-Star break, to Los Angeles, where he was the lone representative for the A's in the All-Star game. But he jumped on a flight with the Houston Astros. The Astros offered him a seat on their flight as they were flying their All-Stars out to Los Angeles. So he got a lift. Atlanta did not offer the same thing to Juan Soto. So look, it is penny-pinching by the Nationals and maybe, you know, a bit of an indication of how they feel about him turning down their offer um, that they didn't fly him out there, which apparently most, if not all, you know, Major League Baseball teams, most in this case, because the A's weren't planning apparently to fly their representative out there. But my answer to this would be, shut the F up, Scott Boris. You're a billionaire too. You fly him out there. He's your client. You went public with the team not flying him out there and penny-pinching on on not flying him out to, to Los Angeles. I'm not sure you gave it much thought that most people understand that you are worth hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars or north of it. I don't know his overall net worth. I am sure that Scott Boris flies privately everywhere he goes. I am sure he's got relationships with NetJets, Wheels Up, any of those companies, and could have easily arranged for his client, by the way, a very important client, a client that may generate his biggest commission of all time, You think he couldn't afford to fly Juan Soto out to Los Angeles instead forcing his client 
to fly commercial. Poor, poor Juan Soto. He had to fly commercial and wait two hours in a layover, perhaps, before he got to L.A. at 1.30 in the morning. Of course, I say that understanding that these people in life, they don't deal with what we what we deal with flying commercially. Hopefully, there was a first-class seat or at least a business-class seat available. Imagine he was sitting middle seat and coach. By the way, Neil in Rockville um, sent me a note, and he said, wouldn't it have been awesome if Dan Snyder heard about it and decided to fly Juan Soto out there on one of his planes as a major FU middle finger to the learners. Uh, he's already done the milk that turns sour in their suite. That actually would have been hysterically funny and would have earned him maybe a brownie point or two. No, more like a half of a brownie point maybe. But Jesus, Scott Boris, stop already. You were truly clueless as to how bad this was going to make you look after the fact. But anyway, uh, one other quick thing to get to before we get to Andy Poland and then Kurt Bodenhausen. The Athletics, Ben Standig was one of 32 athletic beat reporters for NFL teams that had to pick their MVP um, bet, you know, who they'd bet on to win the MVP for their team. And Ben said that it's Terry McLaurin. He said, there's some risk with this designation considering the receiver skipped most of Washington's offseason program because of lagging contract extension talks and the uncertainty with new quarterback Carson Wentz, but McLaurin's talent is undeniable. The fourth-year player also has the best supporting cast, quarterback, and fellow receivers since entering the league, which is all true. You know, I, I thought about this, not necessarily as it relates to who the MVP is, although I had one thought regarding that, and I'll get to that in a moment. But do you know in the history of the MVP award that Washington, with all of its success for a long period of time, has only had three all-time MVPs? Larry Brown was the NFL MVP and the leading rusher in 1972. He was an MVP winner. Uh, Mark Mosley, the only kicker to ever win an MVP award, won it in the strike-shortened season of 1982. And then Joe Theismann won it in 1983. That's it. I mean, Washington had back-to-back MVPs with a kicker and a quarterback, and Larry Brown won it in 72, but that's it. You know, Mark Rippon wasn't an MVP in 91. John Riggins was never an MVP. John Riggins never went to a Pro Bowl which is amazing, um, even though he's one of the greats of all time. Uh, But, yeah, that's their MVP history. And I was also thinking with respect to what uh, Ben was asked to predict for the athletic. You know, if I told you to fill in the blank with, you know, this player uh, was the team's MVP and whether or not it would be obvious based on who you put in there if the team had a good season or a bad season. There's one name that you could put in there that would definitively spell out that they did not have a good season. And that would be if Tressway was the team's MVP. That's the one player probably more than any other 
that if you told if if we were all told right now Tressway is going to be the team's MVP, it was a losing season. You know, you could throw another few players in there. Like if Sam Cosme were the team's MVP, best player MVP, um, which, you know, I don't even think they have that designation. The Welcome Home Luncheon, Luncheon does every year a special teams MVP, an offensive MVP, and a defensive MVP. But I'm just saying that if there were each year a team MVP, uh, it's a bad sign if your punter is your MVP. It's a bad uh, sign if maybe one of your offensive linemen or a guard or a center, now Cosme's a tackle, but a right tackle, um, that wouldn't be the best of signs. Or if you're a punt returner, I don't even know who that's going to be. Is it going to be this guy, Alex Erickson, was the MVP? And on the flip side of that, you you would know that the team likely had a, a pretty good season or the best chance of having a good season if the quarterback was the MVP. Or maybe somebody like Chase Young or Montez Sweat is a defensive uh, you know, player that would have really impacted games. Terry McLaurin, maybe. Antonio Gibson, you know, Curtis Samuel. Anyway, uh, more on that. I'm sure we will take our guesses for the team's MVP uh, before this season begins. But I want to get to the two interviews and conversations that I had. Uh, Andy Pollan is up next. Andy and I discussed just what Kevin Durant coming to D.C. would actually mean in comparison to others who have been acquired by trade, by free agency, um, through the draft, or even if you want to consider coaching hires. Uh, we'll do that uh, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis. Analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This segment of the podcast brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code, KevinDC, and MyBookie will double your first deposit all the way up to $1,000. I've mentioned uh, many times that they have uh, a lot of NFL prop bets for the upcoming season. I was looking at one prop bet in particular this morning, uh, the coach of the year odds for the upcoming season. You know, typically the NFL coach of the year comes from a pool of coaches that are coaching teams that weren't that good the year before, that weren't playoff teams. Rarely does the coach of the year come from a powerhouse team or a perceived powerhouse team that does really well. It's usually the guy that's involved in turning a team around. Well, the Washington team last year was 7-10, and 10, not a playoff team. So Ron Rivera would have been in that pool of coaches that would have been considered as a possibility for, you know, an odds-on favorite maybe for NFL Coach of the Year in the upcoming season. Nah, he's 25th. So for those of you that believe what I do, which is uh, the boys who make odds on this stuff typically know more than we do. They're not expecting much. Um, and we've talked about, you know, Washington's over-under win total, their odds to win the division, the NFC Championship, are not where some of the pundits believe that they are. I think there's more optimism from uh, pundits this year than there are the odds makers. Ron Rivera's got the 25th best odds out of 32 NFL coaches to win NFL Coach of the Year at plus 3,100. Um, so that's a long shot. The favorite is Brandon Staley. A lot of people expecting a lot out of the Chargers this year. The second favorite, all right, Brandon Staley is 14-1. to That's the favorite for the NFL Coach of the Year. Uh, The thing about NFL Coach of the Year, whoever you bet on, you're going to get a really good return. Brian Dable, the head coach of the New York Football Giants, number two on this list. Uh, In fact... All uh, two of the NFC East coaches, Nick Sirianni and Brian Dable, with much better odds. Dable's odds are shocking to me because nobody believes the Giants are going to have a good season. Nobody. And him having the second best odds for NFL Coach of the Year is a stunning number to me. Can't believe that. Uh, By the way, Washington's first opponent, uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and their new head coach, Doug Peterson. Peterson's odds are the fourth best for NFL Coach of the Year um, possibilities. All right. Um, Yesterday on the show, Chase Hughes from NBC Sports Washington. Chase covers the Wizards and has for several years. I had Chase on to discuss the Sam Amico story about Washington being interested um, in Kevin Durant which, by the way, they should be. If there's any possibility, no matter how slim, of trading for Kevin Durant, the Wizards should be massively aggressive. Same way I felt about Kawhi Leonard several years ago when he was available. Same way in football I have felt recently about 
Deshaun Watson, yes, prior to all of the shenanigans, um, and Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers and any elite quarterback. You have to have the quarterback if you're going to win a Super Bowl, and you have to have the elite superstar in the NBA if you're going to contend for a championship. So, yeah, uh, if Kevin Durant's actually available, I would be super aggressive if I were Ted and Tommy Shepard in going after him. Uh, I asked Chase if he thought there were any legs to this story. Here's what he said. Well, first of all, I do believe the Wizards um, are interested in Kevin Durant. I, you know, Woj reported that more than half the league had expressed interest. We know the Wizards tried to get him in the past. Um, I think there would be several hurdles involved, uh, one of them being has Kevin Durant changed his mind from six years ago when he wouldn't even give them a meeting. We all remember that story. But um, certainly if Kevin Durant would come here if his mind has changed over the last six years, uh, then the Wizards should make a major push because he would instantly make them title contenders. So the first part of that answer was he believes the Wizards are interested in acquiring Kevin Durant. And he mentioned that Woj, Adrian Wojnarowski from ESPN, you know, has reported that half the teams in the NBA have reached out to Brooklyn. I certainly hope the Wizards are one of them. Um, but uh, let's take that and run with it, as we did a little bit yesterday with Chase, and as I did on radio this morning by asking the following question and opening up phone lines for it. And the question was this, if, if, hypothetical, sports hypothetical in mid to late July, uh, if the Wizards actually did acquire Kevin Durant, would it be the biggest DC sports acquisition of all time? And if not, which acquisition is bigger. I mean, I, I think it would be the biggest sports acquisition, certainly of this century, you know, since the year 2000. Uh, and there are others out there that we discussed, like Harper and Strasburg and RG3. Um, here on the podcast to have this conversation with me is uh, a person that I can't think of having this conversation with uh, other than him um, that would make it uh, more uh, sort of uh, intelligent and historically based than my good friend Andy Polin. Andy hosts uh, 10 to 12 on ESPN 630. And, of course, Andy is the dean of Sports Talk Radio here in this town. And he joins me right now at Andy Polin 1 on Twitter. So I know you were listening this morning when I did this segment. And I'll get your answer to Kevin Durant and whether or not he would be the biggest sports acquisition in D.C. sports history in a moment. But uh, there were a lot of names that came up. And I'll tell you, Andy, the name that came up that to me is actually the number one of all time in D.C. sports history. If we're considering, by the way, trades, free agent signings, um, drafted players and hires, which would include a coach. One of my callers said Vince Lombardi. And Lombardi actually, of course, the Redskins, you know, getting him out of retirement uh, to coach their team in 1969 probably is the number one hire slash acquisition of all time in D.C. sports history, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That If you go pro, I have two college in mind. Will college count? Yes, I think it has to because in looking at all of my mentions, I, th I think I know what you're going to say um, because I wrote down two of them from people who tweeted them in. I'm, I'm upset that I, th I forgot about them, but go ahead. Okay, uh, one that happened 
and one that didn't happen. Exactly. The one that didn't happen was Moses Malone. Right. Because if, if Moses Malone came to Maryland, it would have been hard to avoid winning a national title, even if he only stayed one year. They had John Lucas, who became the number one pick of the draft, Mo Howard, who was a, a pro guard. Uh, they, they just had talent there to win. And unfortunately, he went to one class and signed with the ABA, and that was the end of that. The second one that did happen was Patrick Ewing. Right. Patrick Ewing yep. was the number one recruited guy at a time when big men really mattered in college basketball. And he delivered. He got them to three national championship games and won a championship. So I think those would be the two, the one that didn't happen with Moses and the one that did happen with uh, with uh, Patrick Ewing. I, I have a, a pro sort of comp on this, not quite the same, maybe not quite the impact, although uh, they did win a championship. Elvin Hayes, and this is when they were still in Baltimore. Right. So it was the last year that they were, they were in Baltimore, the 72 73 season before the season they traded jack uh jack Marin, who i guess would be the equivalent of like a kyle kuzma for elvin hayes who wasn't quite durant but he wasn't that many far notches down on how good he was at the time in the nba yeah it's just that that happened when they were in baltimore um yeah, on right, on right. your so yes, two of the uh, tweets of the many that I got in follow up to this co- uh, this conversation in the call segment on the radio show, and I'm upset for not remembering it. Of course, I was focused on the four pro, uh, pro sports teams, um, but mm-hmm. you know we're not. And remember, we're not talking about what happened after the acquisition. You know, like Gilbert Arenas. I mean, Gilbert Arenas was a big free agent signing, but nothing com- you know compared to what we're talking about. No. Moses Malone may have been, correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, may have been the most highly recruited high school basketball player of all time. And Maryland... Well, part of it was, yeah, I mean, part of it was lefty wanted him. Uh, you know, I mean, Tom McMillan was on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was in high school, lefty got him. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, just the legendary stories of how they chased him. Uh, yeah, I, I would, I would think, I would think that's probably true. I can't think of anybody else that at least I'm aware of that you would think of as a more highly recruited player. By the way, what you just mentioned, you know, Tom McMillan could have been on that list. Tom McMillan was actually a more highly recruited player than Bill Walton was, um, out yeah, of no, high school. Yeah. Uh, but the Patrick, yeah. Patrick Ewing was the same thing. Patrick Ewing was uh-huh. a generational, you know, big man talent who committed to Georgetown and the anticipation for Patrick Ewing's career was incredible. By the way, I would throw in, not that I consider UVA to be a local team, but Ralph Sampson's recruitment was yep. all-time as well, and his debut um, was way up there um, also. So there were uh, – catching everybody up to speed on some of the comps for Durant, I think Durant would be the number one acquisition of certainly this century. And it would it would yeah. be debatable if it's not the all time acquisition for any of the four major pro sports teams and you know the two big college uh, programs uh, in town Maryland and Georgetown basketball. Do you agree with that or not? Yeah, I, I think so. But uh, let me ask you this: Do you factor in what ultimately happens once that guy comes in, or do you judge it on the moment that he comes in? The moment. How, how do you the, judge The that? moment. Okay. How, how, how big yeah. it would be in the moment, how anticipated the debut would be, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, well, like, for example, uh, you know, think of John Riggins, who came here 
in an odd year of free agency. Right. Like the NFL tried it in 1976, and there are only a couple of teams that participated. And, of course, George Allen, as the coach of the then Redskins, did. And he brought Riggins in and brought him in as a blocking back. <laughs> and uh, But ultimately, he became the most important player on their first Super Bowl championship team. So in many ways, you could look at it in the long view of it and say, wow, that's one of the greatest acquisitions ever in the history of pro sports in this town. Wouldn't you look at it that way? Uh, Yeah, from that standpoint, no doubt. But I think even in the moment, it was very exciting. Not at the level of what we're talking about with Kevin Durant, uh, you know, at all. And and even some other players that I'm going to mention that I haven't mentioned today at any point. Um, But it was a big deal when they acquired Riggins in 76. Riggins was a star running back in the NFL. Oh, yeah. No, they they, they rounded him up. They brought in Calvin Hill, too. I mean, (laughs) if you said to George Allen, you're free to sign who you want, you know, he he was going to go for it. So, yeah, they brought in, there were like three or four guys. Dwayne Thomas. Who had been an outstanding well, Dwayne Thomas was later. Dwayne Thomas was, I think, a year or two later. Dwayne Thomas was uh, was, was 76, I think, right? Or seventy four? No, 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 I'm sorry. Dwayne Thomas right. was he before. Was yeah, he was seventy four. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he was. I think he'd been cut for being too difficult, and Allen said, "I'll handle him," and he sort of did. Uh, but yeah, Riggins was seventy six, so that was later on. But uh, that was that was an unusual year of free agency, and it really didn't come back to the NFL for what another fifteen years or so. so yeah, yeah, interesting. Exactly. Um, yeah. So so Durant on you know on the moment. If we take Lombardi out of the conversation, hell, if we take mm-hmm. George Allen, that was a big deal, right? Yes, it was. Yep, yep, yep. The, the, the thing about those two, well, with, with Lombardi, Lombardi was not considered to be instant. This would be instant. Lombardi was, okay, this is a team that's very bad uh, defensively. It's going to take time to build them up. He even said in an early news conference, uh, we're going to be a champion after Sonny Jurgensen's arm falls off. Like, you know, he didn't really think that he was going to win with him, and, you know, he made them a winner right away, and who knows if he'd have lived. Maybe they would have been a Super Bowl team in three or four years, but it didn't happen. With George Allen, and he said the future is now, nobody really understood that. You know, could, could you actually instantly transform a team? And he did. He actually did that, and he got him to a Super Bowl in his second year. Uh, I don't think, though, when he came in, the feeling among the fan base was, okay, we're going to the Super Bowl in two years. He's going to do it, right? I, I, that, that was not my feeling at the time. You know what? That's a really interesting conversation. You know, well in advance, you know, 20 years, tw- more than 20 years prior to free agency coming into the NFL as a full-time thing, George mm-hmm. Allen was proved that you could turn around a team in a year. Now, it was all via trades, right? It was all via mm-hmm. trades. A lot of the right. trades, you know, dealing br- with bringing his, you know, ex-Rams, you know, they titled them the Ramskins, mm-hmm. and they started 5-0 and in 1971, went on to a 9-4-1 record and went to the playoffs in his first year, and they were in the Super Bowl in year two. I don't know how many times that happened in the NFL, just say in the 70s and 80s or pre- you know, uh, the free agency era. Um, But I would bet that it didn't happen a lot because really the way to build a team in that era was via the draft, the way the Cowboys did it, the way the Steelers did it, which, you know, they built dynasties off of drafting their teams. Nobody did it the way George Allen did. I can't remember of a team that did it that way. No, well, 
there, there was no salary cap, but there weren't many owners who were willing to spend money. Edward Bennett Williams was, and so he agreed to do that. But that was an expensive way to do business, and it was short-term because you, you were giving away draft picks to do it. And, you know, he brought in some real fines like Dyron Talbert in his prime, but he also brought in some, some aging guys who only gave him a year or two. Jack like, Pardee. You know, Richie Pettibone. Richie Pettibone. Pardee, yeah. Pettibone, those guys. Yeah, they were, they were good, but only for a year or two. So the long term wasn't great. I think he wound up staying seven years, but they, they pretty much had enough of him by that time, even though he had a successful run. Uh, they knew that this was not going to be long-term good for the franchise. No, but I don't think anybody built a team by trading away all of their draft choices back Mm-mm. then. Um, no, I think he was the first to do it. And, yeah. and and turning around a team that was terrible the year before, I don't know what they were with Bill Austin, 5-9, and 4-10, and ten, something like that, 6-8. and eight. And then eight. They, Yeah, and it's so they year. ended up you know going to the playoffs in his first year. They went to the playoffs in his first four seasons. Um, missed the playoffs in 75 and we're back in it in 76. So five of his first six years with one Super Bowl appearance, George Allen. By the way, um, was uh, you will remember this more than I, but of all of his acquisitions via trade, what was the one that was the biggest headliner? Was it Billy Kilmer? No, no, no. Kilmer was brought in to be the backup right. because Sonny got yeah. hurt. In, in training camp, in, in an exhibition game. Okay, so no, who he, was and, it? And he, um, I, you know, I, I really don't think there was a headline guy. Uh, I think what they did was they brought in a bunch of guys who had been really good players. I don't think there was, you know, because another team isn't going to give up a, an all-pro player in his prime for draft pick. So, you know, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think that there really was. I mean, one of the things that he did um, was he traded he, – he did draft one player, Cotton Spire, in the second round, and he traded that in training camp for Roy Jefferson. Well, Roy Jefferson had been a – He was a great player. With the Colts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he could do those kind of things. And, and what he – what I understand what he did, part in getting these guys, a lot of them I understand were like union leaders. And the other team wanted to get rid of him because of that. Mm. And he liked union leaders because they were leaders. So he would take them on when other teams didn't want them, and they were veterans and making more money than he'd have to pay a rookie or a second-year guy. So, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of things that he was willing to take on that other teams were not. You know, in just, you know, having this conversation that's probably appealing to only um, the over 60 uh, or over 50 crowd right now, actually, as I think about it, and I think I'm right about this, um, even though George Allen came in and declared the future is now and, you know, fulfilled that commitment by winning right away um, and making all of these trades and trading away almost all of his draft choices, the truth is the backbone of that team, the best players on that team were already there, Larry Brown. Charlie yeah. Taylor, mm-hmm. Chris Hanberger, um, Len Haas. Um, you know, yeah. uh, the, the, the bet, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting some, of course, but the real, the great, well, the great players on that team were already there. Sonny Jurgensen, who they, still, they, even though he got injured, was a key factor in '72 when they went to the Super Bowl before getting injured again. But he started some big games yeah. for them early in the season. Go ahead, what? Yeah, he did. No, I think if he'd stayed healthy, they'd have won the Super Bowl. Yeah. But uh, he didn't. Uh, but th- yeah, I mean, yeah, they had some excellent players here, but what he brought in was real leadership. And I think Jack Pardee is really one of the underrated players that ever played for this team because he was like, 
He was a signal caller for the defense. He knew where everybody was supposed to be. Uh, I remember the first game they played, Richie Pettibone intercepted three passes. Richie wasn't much faster than I am, but he knew where to be, where the ball was. Right. So he was able to able to do that. And, and those kind of things. Also, I think Dyron Talbert proved to be a really great pickup because he played here like ten years and and was and was like George Allen's uh, alter ego. You know, he was the one that did the trash talking that George wanted to do and kind of really set the tone for the team. I think and that so that I think of all the pickups he made, I think that was the most important. Uh, just quickly, total digression. Um, over the weekend, they they had the what I consider to be the greatest NFL game I've ever watched, which was the Chargers Dolphins playoff game. Oh, yeah. um, after 82. the '81 season, yeah. you know what I did not remember at all is that Jack Pardee was the defensive coordinator for Don Coryell's Chargers that year. Well, that figured, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they hired Joe Gibbs from the Coriel tree. Coriel, who was the head coach of the Chargers, hired Jack Pardee, who had been fired prior to that season where Gibbs came in after the 1980 season. I did not remember, but as I was watching the game, there was Jack Pardee as the defensive coordinator of the Chargers for that playoff game. Um, yeah, and isn't that something? A, a defensive guy embracing that kind of an offense because he later ran it or a form of it when he was the head coach at the University of Houston. <laughs> right. Well, also as yeah. also as the head coach of the uh, the Houston Gamblers in the USFL. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Because it had a lot of success there, uh, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. So Jim Kelly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Gary uh, uh, Ricky Sanders was on that team. Um, Ricky Sanders and. And Gary Clark. And oh, Gary Clark was in Oklahoma. Gary, yeah, Gary Clark was not with Houston. I think it was Sanders who was with Houston of the USFL. Okay. So the the list uh, that would be comparable to Durant would be Lombardi, as we mentioned. I think mm-hmm. in this decade, I think the the drafting of Harper, Strasburg, and RG3 are the comps. Because I think that yeah. th- these were three highly, uh, you know, uh, they they came with such credentials as mm-hmm. young players. RG three Heisman Trophy winner Harper on the cover of Sports Illustrated at sixteen years old. Strasburg, the phenom, generational talent, and their debuts were so anticipated after their acquisitions. Yeah, no, I think that's that's probably true. Well, well, how about this? Uh, would you throw in Michael Jordan? Yes, Jordan was part of the conversation, but as I mentioned, and you know this, Jordan didn't come to D.C. to play. He came here to be the team president. Right, but when he decided to play, that was an enormous deal, and the assumption was that he would at least get them to the playoffs. That that you know, and and that's what his, his selling point was for playing. Even though he just wanted to play, but but his selling point was, oh, I'll get them to the playoffs and show them what it takes to win there. That that was what he, and he never did. He's only got uh, what thirty seven wins. Right? Yes, but I think the reason I didn't really want to include it is that he wasn't traded for or acquired or signed as a free agent to come here and play basketball. He was in the organization really? as a as a small you know owner uh, equity wise and the team president where he promptly drafted Kwame Brown. Um, do you know? Do you know what I didn't realize until I looked this up? And maybe you remember. Do you know that Jordan decided to play 
in part um, because of the impact 9-11 had on him. He made that decision two weeks after 9-11, and he donated a portion of his salary to 9-11 victims. I I think you're a little fuzzy on that memory, because I remember it. He had decided before that that he was going to play, spent the summer with a lot of his boys getting himself back in shape. Okay. And as, as I remember, Kevin, the announcement, official announcement press conference was supposed to take place on 9-11 and got postponed ah, because right. of that. Very good. And, and then later, and, and then said, yeah, and as part of the deal, he was donating his salary because, you know, Nike was giving him a billion dollars every minute. So it wasn't a big deal. Not that you I, I not, no, that's fair. Not that any of us, either one of us has spent a lot of time over the years talking soccer, although I actually like it more now than I did, you know, say five years ago. I mentioned this morning, I remember this, the signing of Johan Cruyff, the greatest yeah. soccer player in the world at the time. I mean, Pele was playing for the New York Cosmos, was a massive piece of sports news in the mid-1970s. And wa- the Washington well, Diplomats signed him. And Andy, I remember going to RFK Stadium as part of like an elementary school birthday party, and that stadium mm-hmm. was completely filled for, for one of yeah, his no, games. There, 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 there's a forgotten pocket when soccer was really hot in this country. And a lot of it had to do with Pele. Uh, Pele, I think, sold out the Meadowlands. Uh, and didn't he play for the New York Cosmos? Yes, yes. He did. Yeah. And so, so off of that, and, and, and Pele was the most famous athlete in the world. Not, not, you know, not just here he was famous, but, but in the world he was Michael Jordan. And, and so, yes, there, there was that, but it didn't sustain. But, yes, Cripe was, was a part of that period. I remember that. Uh, I think that, you know, on the list of the greatest soccer players of all time, Cruyff is very high on that list. And when the, when the mm-hmm. diplomats, they were called the Dips, by the way, uh, for short, uh, not an easy nickname to come up with our current football <laughs> no. team. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but he, at the time, Pele was older, and I think he was considered the greatest player in the world at that time. He was signed by a North American soccer league team named the Washington Diplomats. All right. um, uh, I I just want to mention, so there were a lot of names mentioned in the conversation this morning. Harper, Strasburg, RG3, Wayne Rooney, Ovi. Um, I don't think any of them uh, really would be comparable to Durant. The Lombardi one in Gibbs version 2.0 was certainly a massive hire. Um, mm-hmm. here are a couple that I d- didn't, you know, some people mentioned Deion Sanders. It's not the same level of what Kevin Durant would no. be. Um, you know, LeVar Arrington, the drafting of LeVar Arrington and also the drafting of Heath Schuler were two that I forgot from this morning <laughs> and the drafting yeah. of Chase Young just a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, all yeah. three of those were massive draft choices that came with highly anticipated debuts. Oh yeah, no, no question. And and Heath Schuler uh, held out too, right. which which didn't help him. But yeah, that that the feeling was okay. They've got their quarterback, and and Norv Turner, I think, even made some ridiculous Troy Aikman comparisons, right. which you know, <laughs> which made everybody nuts. So yeah, that, there's that. But but I think I think that the the real point on the Durant thing is there's no one player that can happen in any sport other than professional basketball that can totally turn your team from a completely irrelevant 
uh, situation, which has been in Washington now for 40 years, into a team that could conceivably win the NBA championship. I don't think there's anything like that, that any kind of comp like that. Yeah, and, and perhaps for this particular team, your example, even though they were in Baltimore at the time, is really the example, even though they were a good team already. Um, the Baltimore yeah, they Bullets. Were good. They had made yeah. the finals yeah. the, year bef- the two years before, right. but you know they, they were able to trade a, a journeyman small forward for one, I mean, Elvin Hayes in 1968 was the number one pick of the draft. Yeah. Wes Unsell was number two. So you had the two top players, and, uh, you know, that, that took them to a level where they did play in three NBA finals, which, the organization which hasn't been in one in over 40 years, that's, that's pretty amazing. All right. You got to go do a radio show. Uh, listen to Andy on ESPN 630, 10 to 12. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for doing this. I'll be listening every morning. Talk to you soon. Andy Poland, everybody, at Andy Poland one on Twitter. Up next, if you're wondering how far the Washington football franchise has fallen in terms of revenues compared to other NFL teams, really interesting conversation next with Sportico's Kurt Bodenhausen. That's next right after these words from a few of our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Kurt Bodenhausen is a sports business reporter for Sportico. He formerly wrote about sports for Forbes. You can give him a Twitter follower, at K Bodenhausen. That's B-A-D-E-N-H-O-U-S-E-N. You can follow and subscribe to Sportico by going to Sportico.com. Kurt's been on the show before um, to talk uh, about things like Washington, you know, franchise valuation. I think I also had you on right after Matsuyama won the Masters to talk about sort of the value, the financial windfall um, that was coming his way a few years back. But I reached out to you the other day because you wrote about the current revenue and business condition of the NFL. And it's interesting to me, and I think it's interesting as it relates to Washington and the you know, football team here, the commanders. Um, And, you know, by the way, the overall financial condition of the NFL, let's not bury the lead, right, Kurt, is pretty damn healthy. Uh, But, you know, as it relates to D.C., I do want to get to, you know, kind of the wrecking ball that Dan Snyder's taken to this franchise over the two decades. But I wanted to start with the headline of your most recent story on Sportico, quote, NFL revenue hits record. Where is the league right now in top-line revenue? Yeah, they're really firing on all cylinders. Uh, each team got a check for $345 million last year, $11 billion in total, uh, and that's the equally shared revenue. So those are big sponsorships, media deals, uh, merchandise business, and it's really the media business that is the overwhelming majority of those TV contracts with Fox and CBS and ESPN. Uh, And this is before the next round of deals kick in. That's coming in 2023. 
you're going to see each team getting way over $400 uh, from that equally shared revenue. So that, you know, that uh, is really the uh, engine that makes the NFL financial system just so incredible. And then, and then the stadium uh, becomes that differentiator when you're talking about uh, the Cowboys at the top and, say, uh, the Jaguars and Lions and Bengals down at the bottom. So the the $11 billion in top-line revenue, $345 million shared through what they share in, meaning the television money and then you know the shared corporate sponsorship money. What is the total top-line revenue um, number for the NFL? Well, once you, once you add in the, the stadium, local media, you're talking about about $18 billion for 2021. We're, we're still in the numbers right now, but uh, that is, that is a, what roughly the number is going to be. Uh, but by far and ahead, uh, almost double what the NBA. And that's why you see someone like Rob Walton pay $4.65 billion uh, for a team like the Broncos that is not a top quartile franchise in the NFL. Goodell said, I don't know, it was fairly recently, but I think he originally said it a while back. Um, he said at one point he thinks the the league will reach twenty five billion in top line revenue by twenty twenty seven. They are on track for that, right? Oh, a hundred percent. With the new media deals here that are going to kick in, uh, they, they are absolutely going to hit twenty five billion. Uh, at the time when he said it, people uh, dismissed it. Um, but you look at the television audience, and uh, while every other area is just bleeding viewers. The NFL is stronger than ever. Uh, it is the top programming um, overwhelmingly um, on, on linear television right now, uh, and they're able to monetize that. So once the $113 billion agreements kick in, they're still doing the Sunday ticket deal, uh, and they're conti- they are poised to take advantage of all these new things that are coming in, legalized sports betting, they're in the best position, uh, crypto, uh, you know, while it's had its hiccups sure. over the last yeah. uh, few months, it will certainly uh, be there at the NFL at the end, and I think the NFL can take advantage of that. So, at eighteen billion in revenue now, maybe headed to twenty-five billion plus in the next few years. I'm just curious, like, where does the NFL, if you consider it to be kind of a consumer or retail? business where do you have any idea like where it ranks i mean I, I would assume like walmart and amazon are way up there and you know maybe a bunch of supermarket chains i have no idea but um where it's got to be one of the biggest businesses in the united states uh, you'd be surprised 18 billion doesn't get you as far as it used to uh amazon and walmart you're talking about 400 500 billion dollar companies in terms of revenue there, there, there's they're the biggest two out there. Uh, and, and so uh, there are dozens, I'd say probably more than 100 uh, companies, uh, U.S.-based companies alone, w- with revenue greater than that. You wouldn't know it by how much attention the NFL gets, though. Right. Uh, it, the, these, these companies uh, operate in, in, in darkness almost relative to the, all the attention that the NFL gets. And you have people that start really successful uh, companies 
and nobody knows who they are. Then they go buy an NFL team. Shad Khan's probably the best example of it. And then everybody knows who you are because you're, you're one of 32. And that's what makes uh, drives the valuation so high. It is such an exclusive club so that the valuations um, operate on, on a much higher level than, than say, the economics uh, would lend itself to. You know, that's so true. I mean, that's a supply-demand issue. I, I the, You know, it's funny that you said that because, it, first of all, so Walmart and Amazon are the biggest retail uh, companies. I mean, I was guessing that Walmart had to be, you know, way up there, and I, I didn't realize that they were that big in terms of, of revenues. But what you said is so funny because I, I think of that all the time. Like you, you see these people or even potentially run into somebody or you know somebody who knows somebody and you, you there, he's worth what? You know, really. And what's the company? And you've never heard of it. You don't know what it does. Um, and there's so many of those stories um, out there. And the other thing you said reminded me, because, uh, you know, for years I have mentioned that while the NFL is a massive business, and as you described, and it's probably true perception based on the attention it gets, how big it is, the individual teams, you know, are generating, I don't know, you, you'll tell me 400 plus million on average in top line revenue. You know, th- th- relatively speaking, those aren't big companies, you know, as the standalone entities, uh, you know, each one of the 32 teams, right? No, 400, 400 million is, is a dot. I mean, right. uh, you know, with a, you're talking about this would be a, if it was a publicly traded company with that level of revenue, I mean, it would be a, it would be a micro cap. Right. I mean, this is, uh, this, this is a blip. Uh, and collectively, if you're talking about an average value, say four billion dollars, 120 billion, 130 billion dollars collectively, I mean, Apple's worth 2.5 trillion. Uh, their market value. Right. Um, so, so even even from a valuation standpoint, uh, which which they outpunch uh, the, their revenue when you're talking about valuations. Uh, but but again, with the amount of tension they get, because it is um, it is it is the number one sport. It is. Uh, America's pastime, uh, despite baseball coining that originally. Uh, and, and that's what gets people excited about it. They, they think there is room to grow the business uh, because uh, if you can fully monetize uh, the passion of that fan base and, and forget about it, if you can figure out a way to, to bring it outside the U.S., which they, they haven't been able to do, uh, but if you can tap into an international audience, um, th- then then these valuations are going to go up even higher as, as well as the revenue, certainly. Yeah, I want to get to valuations on teams, um, especially in the wake of the Denver sale. But, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, out, out punching their weight. I mean, I would certainly guess that valuations, you know, ba- and sale prices as multiples on profitability on EBITDA numbers are, are way out punching their weight class, right? Well, for for years and, and even now, uh, bankers typically look at these teams on multiples of revenue. Yeah, and one okay, of the so multiple over, is yeah. teams teams didn't make money. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was like the ni- ni- late nineteen nineties internet companies, and they all got valued on <laughs> uh, multiples of sales because they had no profits. 
and that's how sports were for uh, for a long time. Uh, the, the, the the way the CBAs are set up now, uh, teams are much more profitable than, than they traditionally have. And when you're talking about the NFL, everybody's profitable, highly profitable. Uh, so, so they so the way people are looking at it, I, I think they are looking at profits a little bit, but but it's still a multiple of sales. Uh, but but. They do, particularly the NFL, because profits are so consistent. Uh, they, they do look at multiples of uh, earnings, uh, the traditional PE method, and, and those values. They're, again, they're like you know, uh, internet companies, tech companies uh, that that are growing super fast. The NFL isn't growing really fast. It, it grows con- revenue consistently, but it's not seeing twenty percent, twenty five percent. Uh, sales growth on on a year over year basis. Look, before I got into this business, um, I lived in as you know one of the founders of one of those inter company internet companies that didn't get valued uh, when we took it public on a multiple of of revenue. It was a multiple of projected revenue because we didn't have any revenue, <laughs> you know, basically at the time. So that was those were really the crazy wild wild west days of twenty some years ago. So. You know, the other thing about it, too, is, you know, you talk, the, the, the media deals, the NFL, for all intents and purposes, is it fair to say that it essentially is keeping network TV alive? Yeah, I, I think sports, sports in general. Live sports, yeah. Live sports are keeping the bundle together uh, 100%, and, and the NFL is, is the most important piece of that ecosystem. So, you know, uh, you, you can certainly make that argument. Um, I, you know, they're all looking and the NFL is no different and, and we'll see it with their, with their, uh, Sunday ticket deal. Uh, they're, they're all looking at streaming as well, uh, because they want to, as they say, fish where the fish are. Um, and you, you've lost, you know, tens of millions of people to from cable, uh, and so you've got to, you have to reach them through streaming, uh, that audience, uh, whether it's what MLS did, uh, with Apple, which is the extreme case of putting everything or almost everything streamed. Um, and I mean, very little on linear TV or, or the NFL has, has consistently said, we want everything, uh, available to the biggest audience possible. Um, and, but they, they are certainly going to look at this, uh, linear television idea so uh excuse me a, a streaming deal with sunday ticket um so it is a hundred percent live sports is really the only thing keeping the lights on do you see the nfl you know i don't know five years from now ten years from now still being available on fox in cbs and nbc well, they're locked in right now for ten years. Okay, so beyond uh, that, with the next round of deal, so we we try to figure out what's going to happen beyond you know ten years out, uh, twenty years out, uh, all the time in terms of the delivery method. Fair I enough. have no idea how yeah, it's going to be delivered then, but the content is going to be incredibly valuable. Uh, my my guess is the next round of TV deals would would offer some combination uh, of uh, being available on linear TV and, and through streaming. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that the NFL will 
make the leap to just a streaming product uh, in the next round of TV deals. But the NFL recognizes the value of its content. And so part of them, you know, there, there's an audience that says, well, why aren't we just doing all of this? Why, why are, you know, yeah, we get this big media fee, but why, why is the middleman collecting any of this money? Why, you know, we can control the whole thing. It's so big. Um, why don't we just stream everything and do everything? Con- control production, control all the revenue. Um, yeah. so there is that argument to be made, but right now the networks are throwing so much money at them um, that it's, it's, it's a no-brainer to take those checks. We're talking to Kurt Bodenhausen from Sportico. I really do want to get to the specifics of the Washington situation right now, but this is interesting to me. And I'm I'm curious as to whether or not you think, because here we are and we're talking about the NFL and its health and its projected health, you know, and the monster that it is and the monster that it will continue to become. And yet... You know, there's always this conversation, you know, CTE conversation, concussion conversation, the decrease in youth participation in tackle football in particular, and whether or not there's any possibility that this sport will go the way of, you know, boxing to a certain degree, you know, long term. If, if you know, and, and especially as we become, you know, a continuing, uh, evolving society and people, you know, will, do, do you think that there's any threat, any legitimate threat to the future of tackle football at a professional level, college level, et cetera? Oh, a hundred percent. I think it's out there. Uh, I think if you're looking back five, ten years ago, I think those concerns were uh, significantly higher and probably impacted, uh, maybe on a valuation standpoint, people buying in. Because when you're buying in an NFL team, you're not buying it for the next five years. You're buying it for the next. 25 years. I mean, the average ownership tenure in the NFL right now is 41 years. Right. I mean, these teams don't trade in and out. I mean, you're buying it to pass to your heirs. Uh, That's how people are approaching these franchises. And so I think that was uh, very much a concern that the NFL in 30 years or 40 years would be looked at like smoking is today. Um, and so just because it's the number one sport doesn't mean it has to be number one forever. And you bring up boxing, which is a great example. Uh, I, I think the NFL is very conscientious of this issue. Uh, I, I think they have introduced um, safety, more safety around the game, um, and helping with you know the, the issue of players not getting you know 20 concussions during the course of their career. Um, and not sending people out there with a concussion, uh, which is which which certainly helps. Uh, I would think the long term health, um, but but that is that is a risk factor, uh, absolutely. Um, and the the declining numbers in, in the number of people playing the sport is definitely a risk factor. Um, and so, does that impact what the front what things look like? In 25 years, 100%, that's possible. Um, but right now, um, and, and that's probably maybe one of the reasons, 
why NFL teams are selling for, say, seven, eight times revenue, and you got NBA teams selling for ten times revenue. Um, the NBA is definitely seemed as deemed as as better growth opportunity, uh, and the NFL is this legacy business that spits off a ton of cash right now, and the future's good. But you know, is is it the sport that everybody's going to want to be a part of in twenty five years? I, I don't know, but it's not it's it's not disappearing. I, I it's not going to uh, run into the role of boxing, but but whether it is the number one sport, no question about it, and a uh, huge gap to number two, uh, that a hundred percent we could see change. I mean, I could see personally, I could see a day in which you know players have to sign some sort of waiver of you know uh, of of liability on the league's part and you're always going to have right a, a demographic where this is their way out this is their way and they're willing to take that risk i mean there are a lot of jobs in this country that come with significant health risks um, but the popularity of the product and maybe the, m- perhaps the demographics of the actual participants may change a little bit. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here as to because I agree with you. I don't think certainly not in my lifetime and I don't know in my kid's lifetime. I don't think football is going away and I don't think football is going to become less popular. But maybe the way um, it draws its players uh, will change. And then they. Really... I think that's shifting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's in, it's happening right now. You're you're seeing participation. I mean, participation is down across the board, but it is uh, most acute in uh, upper middle class neighborhoods yeah. um, that that aren't aren't sending their kids to play football. Right. Uh, they don't want. Um, they don't want them doing it. So. All right. Let's get to Washington. Um, um, you, you know, you mentioned the the media deals. <laughs> And the $345 million check that all 32 teams get after, you know, the TV deals and, and the, you know, the, the merchandise and sponsorship deals that are shared uh, with all 32 teams. What does Washington look like right now in overall revenue? So taking in the $345 million and then adding everything else they get, you know, ticket sales, concessions, parking, local corporate sponsorships, all of the other revenue sources. What, tell me what their revenues look like right now as compared to the rest of the league. Well, I'll give, I'll give you one area that they look like. Uh, the NFL generates an uh, internal report on ticket revenue. And so they share it with all 32 clubs. Uh, it looks at net ticket revenue uh, for, from general seating and club seating. It looks at number of tickets sold. And it looks at the visitor team share, uh, which is basically the, the amount that goes into a pool uh, that, that everybody splits up and everybody right. got we're, a check. We're familiar year. with that because that's where this guy Jason Friedman accused them of shorting the league in the yeah. in that shared revenue yeah. number. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. So I don't want to I don't want to delve into that. But in terms of net ticket revenue um, for the 2021 season. Washington ranked 31st. The only team behind it was the Detroit Lions. Uh, so they were right behind Jacksonville Jaguars, Arizona Cardinals. Um, so that's, I mean, which is just mind-numbing to me to think back to 
when when I first started doing this a million years ago, I mean, the the stadium was packed. the The waiting list was eighty thousand fans for season tickets. You, you couldn't get you couldn't get a seat. And to to see where the franchise is now, uh, every every year we think it's it's hitting rock you know it's hit rock bottom, but it, it keeps dropping further. Um, you know the the hope is. The rebrand, the new stadium, everybody comes back. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But the, the, the situation right now is, is, is bad. Now, they do better than that. Uh, they're not 31st in sponsorship revenue. Um, but what, sponsors are fed up with what's going on, too. Where so, are they in sponsorship? That was my next question. Where I, are they ranked in sponsorship? Yeah, I, I, I don't know where they are, the, 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 uh, exactly where they are. Um, but but uh, I... The the report that uh, came out over the last couple months with ticket revenue, I had a few people walk me through it over the last few weeks, um, and the Las Vegas Raiders are first, uh, which which was the, which is interesting, um, um, followed by San Francisco and then uh, the Patriots, um, but uh, it, it's not it's not good, <laughs> it's not good at all. Um, they, they really need to figure out the stadium situation, really need to uh, figure out how to move forward with, with everything that's going on um, with the team and, and getting called in front of congressional hearings. It's, uh, it's a mess. No two ways about it. I want to make sure I'm clear on, on the net ticket revenue. That's net of the what? The suite and the club, like the premium seat sales? Uh, I'm sorry, just net, uh, it's net of taxes. Okay, and oh, okay, gotcha. And that kind of thing. So, yeah. so 31st in so, the so, league. So, to give you, so, so the Lions are $51 million. Washington's just a tick ahead of that. Uh, and at the top of the food chain, you're talking about the uh, Las Vegas is $119 million. Washington's right below them at 117. Uh, excuse me, San Francisco's right behind them at 117. So 31st, uh, just barely ahead of the Lions. You know, what's actually also interesting about that number, Kurt, is that, you know, just a back of the envelope, uh, you know, uh, sort of sketching out of, of the percentage of fans that have attended games that aren't even fans of the team, but they're the opponent's fans, that number is probably close to 50%. So without Cowboy fans and Eagle fans and Giant fans being in that stadium, I mean, they'd be dead last by miles. Um, in, yeah, in yeah. Well, well everybody gets a little. I know, of that. but and not like them. And, and and Vegas uh, part of the reason Vegas sure. is number one because every every visiting fan circles that date and says, "Oh, I want to go see my team play in Vegas because I want to go to Vegas." So, uh, and they, they snap up tickets. Yeah, no, no. The Vegas thing is obvious. I mean, that's going to be the number one trip for NFL fans road trip uh, for probably the next decade um, until they've, you know, (laughs) you know, for the NFC teams that will only get a shot uh, fan bases, you know, every three, four five years, whatever it is, um, that's going to be huge. But but uh, I don't think anybody, you know, you know, maybe the Cowboys in aggregate numbers, but in terms of percentage of the fans that are actually at the games, I can't imagine that there is a fan base or a stadium that attracts more 
a higher percentage of opponents' fans to games than FedEx Field. So, you know, you mentioned that you don't think that the other, you know, ancillary kind of local revenue is a good number, 31st on net ticket revenue, um, and then you've got all the other, you know, local sponsorship money. They lost their beer sponsor, Anheuser-Busch, in March. I mean, I've got to imagine, and I don't know the answer to this, I'll ask you, is a beer sponsorship the largest, you know, revenue generator in terms of local NFL sponsorship opportunities or not? Uh, It's a big one. I mean, I mean, your stadium is is number one. Um, uh, Your stadium naming rights is number one, I should say. Uh, But, but beer, I mean, it's one of those, yeah, it's one of those core categories. Uh, uh, every building's set up a little different in terms of what assets you want to include in that. You have, uh, like, the, the the Giants and Jets have uh, corner partnerships where they they sell basically the entire corner of, of the stadium uh, to, to one single sponsor. And it's such there's so much inventory that those numbers get really big. But oh, beer is uh, beer is. At the uh, at the top of the food chain in terms of uh, 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 NFL sponsorships. I mean, I would imagine even an organization as reprehensible as as you know Snyder's Washington Commanders that they'll have a beer sponsor. I mean, y- you can't be a sports team and not have a beer sponsor. That would really speak loudly about the way sponsors feel about your team, right? I mean, that, that, that would, I can't imagine that there's a sports team that doesn't have a significant beer sponsor. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are hard situations though. Uh, you know, who, 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 who's looking to get on board right now and have a press release put out that you're, you're signing on to, to sponsor the club, uh, with everything in the headlines. Uh, it's, it's a It's a certainly a challenge, uh, for the organization. So if $345 million is the starting point for all 32 teams equally, um, in terms of the – I'm assuming the Cowboys are the number one overall revenue generator, right? Yes, by, by, a, by a long shot. So where is Washington now on the list of 32 teams in total uh, revenue? We're, we're, still, we're crunching the numbers uh, right now. Okay. We're – Talk, talk to me at the beginning of the season. We'll have, we'll have it all sorted. Well, it used they used to be number two. I'm wondering how far they've fallen. I'm assuming it's in the bottom of thir- um, uh, it's in the bottom third of the league. Uh, yeah, they're they're. I, I would say they're uh, they're they're approaching the bottom third. Uh, they, yeah. Okay. They're, they're uh, quickly moving there. All right. So with all of this understood um kind of the erosion of you know uh the the other revenue if dan snyder sold the team voluntarily or was forced to sell what do you think the team would sell for especially when when you consider that denver you know smaller market you know i don't think it's the same kind of market demographically in terms of you know the the upside in revenue it doesn't have the pent up demand i mean there's still pent up demand if snyder left um i think a lot of people would come back um but what do you think washington's worth if it hit the open market more than Denver, uh, that I can tell you. Uh, the, the, if Washington ended up for sale, you would have 
people lining up down the street to buy that club. Um, it is a uh, even with having to spend two billion dollars on top of uh, the team uh, to get to do a new stadium. Uh, I, I you're probably you're looking at five billion dollars. I mean, um, you know, give or take to how many people for these things to really uh, go through the roof. Um, and part of the reason why Denver reached the levels it did is you need multiple very wealthy people willing to write a check. Uh, in the case of Carolina, David Tepper was really the only, you know, call it, call it the only whale looking to, to, to come in and write that uh, check by himself. And so probably suppress the price a little bit, $2.28 billion. Um, in the situation of Denver, Seemed a very attractive market. Uh, multiple people are, are were willing to go well over four uh, for the team. Uh, and and you, you talk about a market like D.C. that, despite how uh, bad things have been over the last decade plus, uh, I think you would attract a lot of bidders. Uh, East Coast team with close proximity: New York, Philadelphia. Uh, You'd certainly the the sale would start with a five. That's for sure. I mean, is it possible that it would get to six? As anything's possible with the NFL. Uh, the, the stadium, the stadium situation is really tricky um, because Dan, you're going to have to probably uh, how much public money you're really going to get. Uh, so it, it might cost you another two billion dollars for the stadium. Um, now that'll help you generate more revenue, but uh, you start looking at some some really big numbers um part of it with the nfl is uh as long as one of these teams come up for sale only every say four years they're all going to sell for a huge number um if you have multiple teams suddenly hit the market what happens then that 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 would certainly be an interesting exercise if you had two or three teams uh up for sale at the same time uh i i that would really ding uh, the, the price on, on these. Uh, but, but the current way uh, things have been going, it's, it's literally one every four years. Uh, and, and you've created, if you look back, how many new billionaires have been created over the last 10 years, and you've only had two or three NFL teams sold. Um, it's, 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 it's an interesting uh, way to look at it. Uh, you, I don't know if I, – I kind of sense that you implied this, that you think that there will be more NFL teams available? Oh, I don't think so. No, I – Oh, okay. I, any, any, anything's possible. I, I, I'm just saying a total hypothetical uh, academic exercise, what would happen if, right. if suddenly sure. two or three uh, hit the market. Um, and, no, I – Nobody's for sale right now, but uh, you know who knows what happens in Washington. Seattle's going to be sold eventually, you know, despite our proclamations. Ten to twenty years to unwind the estate. I haven't talked to a single person that thinks uh, that team won't be uh, for sale sold in the in the next three or four years. She might buy it, you know, potentially, but it's 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 going to go up for sale uh like probably in the next two years um and then you have to you, you got a, you've got a handful of owners that are getting up there pretty old yeah. uh you know Virginia McCaskey's 99 so I hopefully they've done good estate planning and keep it in the family and they, they want to run it um 
but it, it creates a, a tricky situation as these valuations um, go up and up and up uh, to pass them along. Yeah, I know. To the next generation. Um, what is your current opinion on the situation here with Snyder and all that is going on with Congress and with Mary Jo White investigation? Do you have any gut feel as to where it leads? I, I have no idea. I have no idea. It's a, it's a, it's a obviously a very tricky situation. Uh, um, and for for NFL owners to vote to try and remove uh, Dan Snyder, uh, who will who will fight being removed as an owner uh, um, from every, anyone I've talked to. Um, it's it a, a tricky precedent um, uh, because you know they I I have no idea how it's going to unfold though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> really don't. But it, you know, if it just came down to what's good for business, they would have run them a while back because this market is underperforming in a major way. Like that can't be debated. And I would imagine all 31 owners in the commissioner feel the exact same way about it, right? I mean, they, they they don't like to see what's going on in Washington. I mean, it's um, I mean, we don't we don't have revenue sharing uh, in the same. You know, the high revenue teams used to uh, support the low revenue teams uh, with direct revenue sharing, like they do in baseball. That that doesn't happen anymore. Um, but you know, you see a little bit of it if if we talk about that gate receipt report. That that shared gate number is lower. Um, because fans aren't going to games in Washington. Um, dramatic, uh, the impact that one franchise can have on that number that each team gets. Um, but, but it's, I mean, the bigger problem than the money is just the, uh, the, the cloud that it puts over the whole sport. Um, I mean, that, that's the problem. Uh, the, the, the same thing, the TE cloud, that really hung over it for a while when they were going through uh, the concussion settlement and, and different studies were coming out. And, and I, I, I do think they've moved on from that, uh, but it just, it just puts up every one of these hearings and allegations that come out. It puts a, it puts a cloud over all 32 teams. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've wondered, you know, obviously in the wake of George Floyd, um, the, the driver in the team being forced to move on from its name, the Redskins, was Federal, Federal Express and Fred Smith, and it was PepsiCo, and it was, you know, it was brass tax dollars that were being threatened to be removed from the team that really drove it, you know, and because the truth is, it was not. The issue had actually started to wane a little bit. There was a 2016 Washington Post poll where 90% of Native Americans polled uh, said that they didn't consider it to be a pejorative name, that it was not insensitive. And so, you know, there for a moment they seemed to be in the clear. And then, you know, we had Fred Smith, who obviously was a disenchanted minority uh, owner of the team. Uh, all three of them turned quickly on him. But that changed it. And, I, and I, I've, I've suggested this in the past, like, you know, if really Snyder continued to be as toxic as he is, if big television sponsors might go to the league and say, 
we want to continue to, to, to sponsor the NFL, but when their team is playing, we don't want our spots to run in those games. You know, like there could be a, a way where that big TV deal could drill down to one team and be impactful to the league. I don't know. I mean, that seems like a reach, even as I say it. But <laughs> but it's it, but it was dollars that ultimately drove them from Redskins into you know who they are today, the Commanders. It's tough for some of us to say who have been lifelong Washingtonians and fans of the team. Uh, money talks. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Um, and so, the, those, if those conversations are happening, um, uh, it just, I'll just leave it at money talks. One more for Kurt Bodenhausen um, from Sportico, who's been uh, incredibly generous with his time. So the Nationals are up for sale. The, the learners have retained an investment banker. They're going to sell the team. I don't know how much you have followed this story. I'm not necessarily interested in what you think they'll sell for. I'm interested in the news related to the hot Nationals news, which is Juan Soto and him turning down their big deal. And I'm wondering, and maybe you don't have an answer to this, but would it be more attractive for a prospective buyer to have Soto on the books for, say, a half billion dollars but locked in for the next 15 years or to be traded? Or or the third option would be let him hang there for a while until they take over the team and they can figure out the best answer. I can't figure out what would be of more value to a prospective buyer. And maybe it's a very subjective question, but I'm just curious as to whether or not you've given it any thought. I have given it thought. I've had a conversation with lots of people and I think you're, you're spot on. It is totally subjective. What are you looking for as a buyer? Are you looking for a clean slate? I want to start over. I don't want, I don't want that half a billion dollar obligation sitting over my head on top of what the deferred salaries I got to pay Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg. Um, or do, do you want, like, I'm coming in and I know I have this piece to build around and I'm excited about it. Um, you could, you, I think there's a good argument despite the total number seeming so astronomical. Uh, I, I think there's a very good argument to be made that it's a, a good deal, assuming he stays healthy, which is a big if. Um, $29 million is, is a very affordable salary. For a top five player in in the sport, um, so I, I think it's totally preferential uh, what what somebody would want. Um, I, I think uh, in this in the same way that would is the Los Angeles Rams you know, with this shiny new stadium, not much of a history, even though they just uh, um, did I say St. Louis Rams? I'm at Los Angeles Rams. If I say St. Louis, yeah, no, it's Los awesome. Angeles Rams. Yeah.
such a unique situation. Um, and, and that's, uh, that's what makes each of the sales so fun. Uh, and, and that's what was fun to watch with the Broncos sale, fun to watch with the Chelsea sale, as crazy as that was. Um, so I, 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 I think it is, um, it, it really comes down to buyer's choice. Uh, I, I think some would view the contract as a asset if he was locked up long term. Um, and I think others would look at it as a liability. Yeah. And a big albatross in terms of what that number would end up being. I don't think he's going to sign a long-term deal for two and a half years anyway, so it's probably a moot point. But um, this was great. I really appreciate it. I, I, I'll, t- I'll have you on again because I wanted to get to the live tour, but I've kept you for far too long. <laughs> um, but it's been really interesting and really informative. I appreciate it. Follow Kurt on Twitter at K Badenhausen, B-A-D-E-N-H-A-U-S-E-N. Uh, Sportico is a great sports business uh, outlet, and Kurt's one of the best. Thank you so much for your time. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much, Kevin. Enjoyed it. All right, that's it for the show today. Back tomorrow with Tommy. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.